everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Adventure Island, a side-scrolling platformer developed and published by Hudson Soft for the Nintendo Famicom System and MSX Computer Platform in Japan in 1986, the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America in 1988, and the NES in Europe and other geographic regions in 1992. We're going to start talking about that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 54. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. And we also have a Discord server. The link to the server is in the show notes. That's probably the best spot to interact with members of the community and interact with me as it relates to the podcast or just pretty much anything else. I'm out on Discord pretty frequently, as are a bunch of the other members of the community. So if you want to continue or start the discussion, that is probably the spot to do it. We also have a ton of fun out on Discord, including... The Weekend Gaming Challenge, and we have just reached the end of Season Zero of the Weekend Gaming Challenge, and there is a champion. But first, let's go over the results as they stand. This past weekend, there were another four games that we decided to go through. A ton of points were on the board, and at the end of the day... ISO got another 32 points this past weekend. That solidified his lead. He is the champion of our Season Zero Gaming Challenge. Congratulations, ISO. He had 83 points over the course of the season, which is absolutely crazy. Following up in second place was Rich Senewald. He got 14 points this past weekend to finish with 39 points. Left-handed guitarist added a point this past weekend. He finishes in third with 15 points. Out of nowhere, NBY 135 decided, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring too. Got 12 points just this past weekend, and that was good enough to finish in fourth place for the season. One weekend's worth of work finishes in fourth place. Absolutely insane. In fifth place was Boogie Gnu. He still stayed at 11 points, no points this past weekend. Blue Fates finished with six points in sixth place, and I Am The Dizzle finished in seventh place with two points. So obviously, ISO, as the grand champion of this season, is going to receive a prize, but there is also a prize for someone else. And the way that we're doing this is anybody who participates, anybody that gets at least a point, over the course of the season, is entered into a raffle to win an additional prize. And the way it works is the number of raffle tickets, so to speak, that each person has is equivalent to the number of points that they finish the season with. So as an example, Rich Tannerwald finished the season with 39 points. He has 39 tickets in the raffle, meaning that he probably has the highest probability to win, but because the raffle is entirely random, there is no guarantee. So literally anybody who participates is entered into the raffle, which means we have six raffle participants today. We have Rich Senewald, left-handed guitarist, NBY135, Boogie Gnu, Blue Fates, and I Am The Dizzle. 
I entered everybody's tickets, so to speak, into a random generator, and I generated the ticket winner. So the winner of our first ever raffle for our first challenge season was... Bookie Canoe! Bookie Canoe, congratulations. You won the raffle. You will also be receiving a prize, as will ISO. Thank you all for playing. Our next season of the challenge begins on October 13th. So we're taking a little bit of a break from the weekly challenge. There is also a monthly challenge, and this monthly challenge is a little bit different in that anybody can propose your own game and set of challenges up to 10 points. So go out to Discord if you're interested in getting involved with that, and then those will effectively be the challenges of the month, and anybody can participate and add points onto the next season. So go out there if that sounds interesting or fun, or if you want to participate in future seasons of our gaming challenge, Discord is the place to be. I should mention that we also have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash classic gaming today. There are a couple of perks that you get for signing up as a patron, including a Patreon exclusive podcast, which releases every other week. We have five episodes of that out so far. The sixth one will be coming out next week. So if anybody is interested, that's patreon.com slash classic gaming today. And I also want to give a shout out to our current Pantheon patrons. They are ISO. Rich Sanewald and David Morton. Thank you guys for supporting the show and thank you all for supporting the show. Whether you contribute monetarily or you simply listen on a regular basis, I truly enjoy that you're here and I hope you all have a great time as well. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does it sit within the overall context of video and computer gaming? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or give a star rating or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should still play it today. It is a certifiable classic. You owe it to yourself to play those titles. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre in which the game exists. You are almost guaranteed to have a good time. They are not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really worthwhile experiences, and I still think you should play them even today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They've either aged a little bit, they might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You could still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot make a blanket recommendation to the general population. These just are just a little bit below where I would feel comfortable making those recommendations. And then beyond the Mediocre Mentions, we reach the Footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend 
anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Adventure Island. Adventure Island is a side-scrolling platformer developed and published by Hudson Soft for the Nintendo, Famicom, and NES systems, as well as the MSX computer platform originally releasing in Japan in 1986, with releases around the world happening a couple years after. Before we can talk about Adventure Island on Nintendo's 8-bit consoles, we have to talk about a different game entirely. Well, sort of. That game is Wonder Boy, an arcade title released in 1986, developed by a somewhat lesser-known company, Escape, and published by a much more well-known company, Sega. Escape was a Tokyo-based game development studio founded in 1986 by Ryuchi Nishizawa and Michishistu Ishizuka, two aspiring game developers who had, up to this point, never really had a successful game release. They had some talent. But before creating their company, which, by the way, was named after their favorite keyboard key, that's not a joke, they didn't have any real game industry credentials to speak of. Regardless, they wasted little time in sitting down to begin working on their very first title, which they decided would be a side-scrolling platformer designed to compete with the newly released Super Mario Bros. game Nintendo developed, which basically served to define what many people would want and expect from platforming titles from that point on. Now, I know that many people, myself included, consider the original Super Mario Bros. title to be one of the best games of all time, and it was certainly the title that put the side-scrolling platformer genre on the map. But, it most certainly wasn't the first side-scrolling platform title ever created. And in fact, even Mario's creator, Shigeru Miyamoto, indicated that games like 1984's Pac-Land, starring, you might guess, Pac-Man, served as an inspiration for the title. Escape, as they were sitting down to create their game, similarly took inspiration from Pac-Land, as well as Super Mario Bros., in the hopes that they would be able to create something as memorable, despite this being their first attempt at creating a commercial game. As was fairly common in the 1980s video game industry, creating a title typically took a matter of months as opposed to the standard multi-year efforts that we see with today's games. In fact, it literally only took a few months from the point that the company was founded to when they would release their first game into arcades, that being, as you might have guessed, Wonder Boy. Wonder Boy was a side-scrolling platform title that was based on a relatively simple premise. You'd play as a caveman named Tom Tom, whose girlfriend was kidnapped by an evil demon, and your mission 
was to make your way across a variety of platforming stages, avoiding or killing enemies, jumping and sometimes skateboarding from platforms to clouds to island shores, leaping over boulders and other obstacles, all in the pursuit of defeating the various bosses peppered throughout the game in the hopes of eventually saving your girlfriend. Along the way, you gain access to a couple of different weapons, including a stone hammer, as you push progressively further into each level, moving quickly to avoid running out of time. Luckily, your time meter, which wasn't really a numeric countdown, but was instead a constantly depleting horizontal bar, could be replenished by eating various fruits that were placed throughout each level. Assuming your skills were up to the test, you'd make your way through the game, defeat various enemies and bosses, and finally save the day. Now, anyone who has ever played Adventure Island is probably a bit confused right now, because I literally just described the plot and gameplay framework of Adventure Island. But I wasn't talking about Adventure Island, I was talking about Wonder Boy. So you might be thinking, what gives? Well, I'll tell you what gives. When Wonder Boy was created, Escape brokered an interesting publishing deal with Sega. Under the terms of the deal, Escape would retain the full rights to the game itself, including all of the graphics, gameplay mechanics, levels, and pretty much everything else that makes up a video game. What they didn't retain the rights to, however, was the Wonder Boy title and the game's main character, TomTom. Instead, Sega would be granted full rights to both the name Wonder Boy and the TomTom character, while Escape remained the sole owner of Wonder Boy the game. I know that sounds a bit confusing, but effectively, what this means is that Escape could pretty much port or license the game on any system, even those who may be competitors to Sega. The only things they couldn't do was call any of those ports Wonder Boy or use the TomTom Caveman character in those games. Everything else, though, was fair game, and Escape would end up licensing the game to be ported to several different non-Sega consoles. For now, just keep that in the back of your minds, because we're going to shift gears a bit to begin discussing a different game company entirely, the prolific Japanese video game developer, Hudson Soft. In the tradition of video game companies beginning their existence as something entirely different, Hudson Soft would be founded in 1973 by two brothers, Yuji and Hiroshi Kudo. When the company was founded, the Kudo brothers were passionate about one thing above all others. They wanted to create the best, most well-regarded coffee shop in the Midtown Tower skyscraper in Tokyo, Japan. Yes, you heard that correctly. Hudson Soft, the creator of Bomberman, the company that helped NEC create and launch the PC Engine, or TurboGrafx-16, depending on where you live, in its original incarnation, that company was intended to be a coffee shop. The Kudo brothers were well on their way to opening up their caffeine-fueled dream when they hit a bit of a stumbling block. As they were putting the finishing touches on their grand opening, they became aware of the fact that inside the same building they were located in, there was already a different coffee shop that effectively had the market cornered. The Kudo brothers were well-educated, but they didn't have a ton of experience in business management, so they didn't sit down to begin strategizing how to put the other coffee shop out of business or how to provide different offerings to help attract customers to their shop. Instead, the Kudo brothers decided to change their shop's purpose entirely. 
what started out as a coffee venture would morph into an amateur radio shop when it finally opened its doors as CQ Hudson in May of 1973. Running CQ Hudson was challenging for a number of reasons, most prominently because, like we mentioned, the Kudo brothers had no background or education in actually managing and running a business. And despite their best efforts, they weren't able to find any trustworthy, business-savvy partners to potentially join them in this new venture. These factors combined to make CQ Hudson a consistently poor performer from a business management perspective. And in fact, the company was effectively bleeding money every single month since it opened its doors. That would all start to change in 1975, as Hudson began to shift its business model to focus on the newly developing personal computer market, followed in 1978 by yet another shift to begin focusing on making and publishing video games. Seeing the potential in the video and computer gaming market, Hudson jumped into the industry with both feet and began releasing titles at a ridiculous pace, even by 1978 standards. Remember in prior episodes when we talked about the much maligned creation of E.T. for the Atari 2600 and the incredibly short one-month development cycle that resulted in a stunningly poor product that almost single-handedly crashed the video game market in the early 80s? Well, Hudson would put that development cycle to shame, and shortly after they entered the video game market, they'd begin releasing games at a rapid pace, and at one point was releasing nearly 30 new titles in a single month. Now, in all fairness, as a game publisher as well as a development company, that meant that they actually had agreements with external partners who were developing a number of these titles. So it's not like they literally had one person cranking out the equivalent of a game each day. But at the same time, considering the pace of game releases in the late 70s, a release pace of 30 games in a month was still absolutely ridiculous. As you might imagine, none of those rapidly developed and released games would gain Hudson any degree of fame or fortune, and in fact, I was barely able to find any references to any specific Hudson Soft titles of the late 70s. Their focus on quantity over quality definitely showed, and I would be curious if anyone has any particular memories of any of these very early Hudson releases. The Kudo brothers recognized that this business model wasn't leading to any sort of success, so in 1983, the company decided to shift gears again. It reduced the number of releases dramatically, and decided instead to focus on creating and publishing worthwhile experiences as opposed to what amounted to throwaway titles. This shift would prove to be the exact thing that Hudson would need to begin becoming a successful company, as shortly after this change in focus, they landed a deal to port the popular computer title Load Runner to the Nintendo Famicom system in 1984, and in the process, they became the first third-party software developer for the Nintendo Famicom. If you're thinking that sounds like a big deal... Well, you would be right, but to understand why, we have to dive a bit deeper into history to talk about the world of software development agreements amongst gaming companies. When video game consoles were first coming into prominence in the 1970s and early 1980s, the concept of creating a game for a console was pretty much a single-party affair, with that party being the maker of the console. As an example, let's look at the Atari Video Computer System, or VCS, and how they handled releasing titles for their system. In short, up until 1979, 
any game you would play on the Atari VCS was a game created by Atari itself. And that direct control over game development and releases meant that when you were buying an Atari game, you pretty much knew you were guaranteed a certain level of quality. That doesn't mean that every single game Atari released was quote-unquote good, but none of them were designed as throwaway efforts. There was care and attention placed on every Atari release. That would all change in 1980, when the concept of third-party development and publishing came into existence, which was, interestingly, spearheaded by a relatively new company at the time named Activision. You might have heard of them. Anyway, after 1980... Any number of companies could release titles for the Atari system, and in fact, this rapid increase in developers and publishers led to a huge number of titles beginning to flood the Atari game market. And with that flood of new games came a severe degradation in quality, because literally anyone could begin releasing games for the system. The number of completely worthless, shovelware kinds of experiences just exploded, which, even more so than the ill-fated E.T., contributed to a complete lack of consumer confidence in the video game market and eventually led to the video game crash of 1983. Nintendo rose out of the ashes of that crash like a phoenix ready to do battle, and they were determined to not repeat Atari's sins when they released their Famicom 8-bit system which actually ended up coming out right in the midst of the 1983 video game market crash. Nintendo early on followed a similar approach as Atari, choosing to release games for their new system that came directly from their own internal developers, which led to each video game released on the system maintaining a degree of quality standards that other companies like Atari simply could not match. But Nintendo was also realistic. They knew that if they wanted to continue to expand their video game market foothold, they'd have to begin partnering with other developers and publishers. Those third-party agreements, however, were designed to be much more restrictive, with third-party companies only being allowed up to five video game releases in a single year, in addition to having a number of anti-competitive clauses that attempted to keep third-party developed titles exclusive to the Nintendo ecosystem. I recognize that a number of companies got around this restriction by creating shell companies that acted as dummy studios for allowing larger publishers to release more titles in a given year. But regardless, Nintendo should be commended for really trying to focus on quality releases. They were trying to revitalize the industry and restore consumer confidence in video games, and they knew that meant fewer, higher quality releases. I mention all of this because, with Hudson being the first third-party developer for the Nintendo Famicom system, there was a lot of pressure to deliver high-quality gaming experiences. And considering that for years Hudson had operated under the premise of quantity over quality, there was an even greater risk of the venture being unsuccessful. Luckily for all involved, Hudson truly did dedicate themselves to creating higher quality experiences, and their first release for the Nintendo Famicom, the port of Loadrunner, would prove to be incredibly successful, selling over 1.2 million units after its release in 1984. That success is what would pave the way for Hudson Soft to finally begin making a name for itself in the video game industry, with a number of other releases following in 1984 and 1985, most notably Bomberman, which is a puzzle-based video game series that still maintains active releases even today in 2023. In fact, the company was becoming so popular, especially in Japan, 
that in 1985, it kicked off a Japan-wide video game competition that would become an annualized event for the next 15 years. This yearly competition, known as the Hudson All Japan Caravan Festival, would feature several recent Hudson releases and would allow up to 250 gamers to compete for the top score. Conceptually, this was very similar to the Nintendo Video Game Championship of the 1990s, albeit less well-known outside of Japan than Nintendo's event that was, perhaps most popularly, advertised in the 1989 Fred Savage film The Wizard. Anyway, these Hudson Caravan festivals would prove to be fairly popular amongst the Japanese gaming public, and would for the first time introduce many people to a Hudson employee that joined the company in the early 80s. That person was Toshiyuki Takahashi, otherwise known in gaming circles as Takahashi Meijin, which translates as Master Takahashi. Takahashi began his post-educational career as a supermarket attendant, though he always had an interest in computers. In fact, it was the purchase of his first computer in the early 80s that spurred him to begin learning how to develop software for computer systems, the thought being that if he was going to spend a significant amount of money on a computer, he ought to learn how to use it as effectively as possible. Eventually, Takahashi would join the growing Hudson Soft Company, though interestingly, the fact that he got a job at the company at all was pretty much luck. One of Takahashi's friends was up for a position at the company, and on a lark, he invited Takahashi to come along. Once in the building, Takahashi's personality was infectious, and even though his friend was interviewing for a job, it would be Takahashi who would be recruited to join Hudsonsoft, not because of his software skills, but simply because the company liked his energy. So, when Takahashi joined the company, he was assigned a role in sales and marketing, which the company thought would be a great fit for his overall personality. He ended up doing exceedingly well in his role, and it wouldn't take long before he'd be given opportunities to be more in the public spotlight, starting first with the publication of a Hudson game-focused tips and tricks section in a Japanese comic book, followed by public appearances to demonstrate various games, and in the process, his own gaming skill. It was that skill in gaming that would lead Takahashi to be recruited to effectively be the face of the company, as well as the MC of the Hudson Caravan Festivals, where he could display his gaming prowess to others while at the same time encouraging competitors to strive for their own high scores. While Takahashi would be a highly skilled gamer, in general it was one specific skill that really propelled him to superstardom or at least as close to superstardom as a gamer could hope to achieve in the mid-80s. You see, Takahashi had the unique ability to be able to tap a controller button faster than anyone else in the world. Literally, he holds the record for being the fastest button tapper, even today, worldwide. Holding a normal Famicom controller, Takahashi was able to press a single controller button 16 times in a single second. If that doesn't sound impressive to you, go grab a controller right now and see how fast you can press a button on your favorite controller. Or better yet, look up the YouTube video showing Takahashi's insane button pressing speed. It's kind of a very niche skill, but it's an impressive skill nonetheless. The Japanese gaming world loved Takahashi, and he became so popular that he even had his own television show in the mid-80s, in addition to the marketing and video game caravan work he was already doing. When I say Takahashi was the face of Hudson Soft, I mean it. 
he was quite possibly the most famous gamer in the world around this time, and the fact that he worked at Hudson Soft immediately lent it an air of legitimacy, not to mention the quality titles that the company was now churning out after it decided to focus its efforts on producing well-designed releases. As 1986 came around, Hudson was beginning to plan out its release slate for the year, and around that time, they became aware of a recently released arcade title called Wonder Boy, which, like we mentioned earlier, was developed by a company named Escape and published by Sega. When Hudson saw the title, they knew that it had a lot of potential beyond its arcade heritage, and they began discussions with Escape to license the title for an eventual release on the Nintendo Famicom system. There was just one problem. Like we talked about, the framework for the Wonder Boy game was owned by Escape, and was available to license to anyone for potential ports. The Wonder Boy title and the main character, however, was owned by Sega, which meant that any Hudson port of the game would have to be converted to feature both a new main character as well as a new game title. Hudson didn't have any issue with this. They simply wanted the game, and it didn't take long before they came up with a brand new title for their forthcoming game. That title, of course, was Adventure Island. Coming up with a different main character for the game, however, would prove to be a different story, and Hudson had a few different options they could go with. But at the end of the day, creating a new character is a pretty risky endeavor, because there is no guarantee that the game-playing public is going to embrace that character. For every memorable mascot like Mario or Sonic, you have at least 20 Glovers. And by the way, bonus points to anyone who remembers that one. Anyway, Hudson began thinking about what, if any, recognizable character they'd be able to leverage, in the hopes of broadening the initial appeal of the game. One day, the team had an epiphany. What if, rather than base the game's main character off of a pre-existing or new video game mascot, the team instead took a real-life person, someone with a larger-than-life personality, and created a caricature of that person, making him the character of the game. And within Hudson Soft, who better to star in this brand-new video game venture than the face of the company, Toshiyuki Takahashi, otherwise known as Takahashi Majin, the master game player, the television star, the video game competition MC, and world record button masher. It seemed like a match made in heaven, and shortly after a couple of brainstorming sessions, the decision was final. Hudson's Adventure Island would star Takahashi Majin, much to the delight of Japanese gamers across the country. In fact, in Japan, the name of the game itself translated roughly as Master Takahashi's Adventure Island, a testament to the popularity of the man behind the character. What could have been an issue, having to come up with a new main character for an already established game, was turned into a featured selling point. It was actually pretty ingenious by the Hudson team to come up with that solution. Now, while Japanese gamers knew who Master Takahashi was, name recognition in North America and other geographic areas wasn't quite as pervasive. So, in North America, Master Takahashi simply became Master Higgins, while in the UK, the same character was renamed Master Wiggins which, by the way, is one of the most UK-ish names I have heard in quite some time. So, with the character in place and the name of the game solidified, it was now time to make the actual game. And here, the team effectively copied Wonder Boy in nearly every possible way. 
Sure, the graphics would need to be changed to accommodate the Nintendo Famicom's more limited graphics power in comparison to arcades of the time. The music and overall soundtrack would be reworked, and some power-ups and rewards for completing levels would change a bit between the arcade and home iterations. But for all intents and purposes, Adventure Island was Wonder Boy, albeit with a different character and title. In this way, it was a true port of the arcade experience, albeit tailored a bit to fit the console that the game was being created for. After getting all of the details ironed out, Adventure Island would release on the Nintendo Famicom system in 1986 and would, upon its release, receive generally favorable reviews by game critics in various publications. Many critics praised the game's overall design and difficulty, stating that unlike many other titles whose difficulty came from poor controls or haphazard mechanics, Adventure Island was in fact designed incredibly well, with its difficulty being driven by a need to learn the game as opposed to arbitrary and random difficulty spikes. We're going to talk about my own opinion on the game's difficulty in a little bit, but suffice it to say, Adventure Island does have a bit of a reputation for being a pretty challenging experience. Regardless of that reputation, with the mostly favorable response of gamers and critics alike, it didn't take long before Hudson would begin working on a series of sequels for the game, with the fourth and final game in the series releasing as a Japanese-exclusive title in 1994, which, by the way, holds the distinction of being the last game released for the Nintendo Famicom system in Japan. In all instances, the three sequels to Adventure Island all followed a similar structure as the original game, albeit with various added features as the game series continued to mature. The Wonder Boy series, by contrast, would continue to expand completely independently of those Adventure Island games, with each Wonder Boy game beginning to incorporate more role-playing game elements into their framework, which is quite the deviation from the original Wonder Boy platform experience. In fact, the Adventure Island sequels all look and feel more like the original Wonder Boy than any of Wonder Boy's true direct lineage sequels. I find it kind of funny that Adventure Island and its descendants, despite evolving into a standalone series itself, still stayed closer to the Wonder Boy formula than Wonder Boy's own sequels did. It begs the question, is Adventure Island a more meaningful expansion of the Wonder Boy series than Wonder Boy's own internally developed sequels? That's obviously a rhetorical question, but the fact remains that Adventure Island, independent of its origins as a home console port of Wonder Boy, does in fact have its own legacy. Like I mentioned, it would spawn several direct sequels, as well as a number of re-releases and inclusions in various compilation packages over the years. It was also interestingly remade entirely for the PlayStation 2 and GameCube systems back in 2003, but that release was a Japanese exclusive and therefore didn't have as much exposure in other geographic territories. Beyond Adventure Island's direct sequels, there would also be a number of other sequels released on various consoles beyond the Famicom and Nintendo Entertainment System, including the Super NES, the TurboGrafx-16, the Game Boy, and the Nintendo Wii. Conspicuously absent from that list, you might notice, is any Sega system, which kind of makes sense considering the licensing situation that allowed Adventure Island to be born in the first place. Hudson Soft, as a company, would continue to release games for a multitude of systems over the years, most prominently Nintendo-based consoles, as well as having a hand in the creation of the TurboGrafx-16 alongside electronics company NEC. Eventually, though, despite its overall success in the 80s and into the 90s, Hudson Soft would cease operations in 2012 after being bought by Konami. 
As for Master Takahashi, he would continue to maintain an executive role at Hudson Soft until 2011, at which point he announced his retirement from the company. Though he would later go on to continue working on games across the industry, and just this past May, he would be involved in releasing a shoot-'em-up title for the Nintendo Switch entitled Star Gagnant. Most interestingly for me are two modes included in the title, Caravan Mode and Rapid Fire Mode, two game types that harken back to Takahashi's heritage as both the MC of Hudson's Caravan game competition as well as his own world record button-pressing prowess. While Adventure Island might not be quite as famous as other platform titles, that in no way diminishes its significance in gaming history. What started out as a simple port from the arcade into the home would spawn an entire series of games and would itself propel Hudson Soft into the spotlight for years to come. Was it the most well-regarded platform title of all time? No, it wasn't. But I would venture a guess that anyone who played the game absolutely remembers the title. And even today, I know I personally still remember the various game scenes, levels, and music nearly as well as I did when I first played the game almost 35 years ago. If that's not the mark of a worthwhile, memorable experience, I don't know what is. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Adventure Island today versus when it was released, oh geez, 35 years ago, at least in North America, even longer ago in Japan. So at a glance, you might think that Adventure Island is simply one of the many platforming titles that were released after Super Mario Bros. left its mark on the genre. But the fact is, Adventure Island is both a traditional platforming experience and also a unique platforming experience. So, let's talk about the game. First, though, as I mentioned earlier, Adventure Island is not a completely original experience, but it's instead based on the arcade game Wonder Boy. And by based on, I mean it's pretty much the same game with a different character, meaning the mechanics, levels, and enemy types are pretty much identical between the two games. I did personally play a little bit of Wonder Boy in preparation for this episode, so I can say with absolute certainty and conviction that Wonder Boy's levels and Adventure Island's levels are effectively the same thing. There are some differences with the graphics, and especially because the different hardware between the arcade and the Famicom system, you just couldn't have that arcade experience on an 8-bit console at the time. So the graphics are different, the sound and music is different, but otherwise, the mechanics, the levels, the items, just the way you play the game, they are basically the same game. Anyway, in Adventure Island, your goal is simple. You need to progress through eight different worlds, each of which have four different stages, in order to eventually save the day and rescue a damsel in distress. Each individual stage in a world is designed around a common stage type or theme, such as beaches, spooky forests, hidden temples, island paths, mountaintops, and icy caves, complete with ice sliding physics. 
Each of those stages is split up into four sections, which are really just ways of checkpointing your progress throughout a given stage. The fourth stage of every world is a boss level, where you have to get through a normal-sized stage followed by a boss fight, each of which are pretty much the same fight throughout the game, although in later fights the boss moves a bit quicker, which can make avoiding certain projectiles just a tad more challenging. Speaking of challenge, trying to get through a stage, or even from one checkpoint to the next, can be extremely difficult, as you have to traverse a number of obstacles and defeat, or avoid, a number of enemies as you work your way through the game. Luckily, you do have access to a couple different weapons, which you can pick up from eggs scattered throughout the levels. Your base weapon is a stone hammer of sorts, which you can throw in an arc towards your enemies, but otherwise has no effect on obstacles, while its upgrade is a fireball, which does much more damage, and can even destroy boulders and rocks, effectively making it much easier to progress through a given stage. If at all possible, you really want to get and hold on to the fireball weapon. It is a major boost to your survivability, and because there's no ammo requirements or anything like that, you can pretty much spam it constantly to take enemies and obstacles out before you can even see them. And there are a bunch of different enemy types in the game, including cobras that spit at you, leaping frogs, charging aborigines, sliding spiders, and flying bats. In all instances, each enemy has a unique attack and movement pattern, and learning their movements and patterns is a key component of becoming proficient at the game. You can't just take your time observing the levels and enemies, though, because you do have a time meter of sorts. The interesting thing with this game, though, is that rather than have a countdown timer on the screen like many platformers do, in Adventure Island, your countdown timer is almost like a life bar. It's not completely like a life bar, because if you hit an enemy or a deadly obstacle, you're going to die no matter how much life, in quotes, you have, but it does provide some damage buffering in the event you hit a non-deadly obstacle like a rock. The good news is that you can replenish your timer slash life bar by collecting various fruits found throughout each level, and as you make your way through each stage, you have to try to balance collecting those fruit, avoiding and defeating enemies, and navigating obstacles. It creates an interesting dynamic that serves to make the act of platforming feel deeper than other games released around the same time. One note though, make sure you avoid the evil eggplant because it will deplete your timer life bar significantly. In fact, it's programmed to deplete your bar to a sliver remaining, and if you pick up more fruit or other regenerative items to replenish your bar, the eggplant is going to keep ticking down. Your best bet in those instances is to let the eggplant finish and then grab items to replenish your bar. Otherwise, you will effectively waste the fruit. Anyway, it probably goes without saying, but another key component to learning the game is recognizing and in some instances memorizing the level layouts for each stage, as there is pretty much no randomness in the game at all. Everything has been designed to play exactly the way the game's designers wanted it to play, which means that every level will have the same exact layout, enemy placements, and traps regardless of how many times you play it. In this way, each level becomes almost like a puzzle to solve, where the difficulty of the puzzle changes based on which weapons or items you have at your disposal. 
Assuming you have a fireball in your possession, the game becomes a pretty straightforward platformer, albeit with some pretty tricky and well-designed jumps, platforms, and obstacles. Try to make your way through a level without a weapon, though, and it becomes an entirely different experience. It is much more challenging. But in that challenge is where the beauty of Adventure Island shines through. Many games around the mid-80s, when they were created, were balanced for only one type of playstyle, which is usually predefined by the game's developers. In the case of Adventure Island, you might assume that the game was balanced around your character having access to a weapon at all times, because for the most part, the game provides ample opportunities to grab a stone axe at a minimum in almost every level. But there may also be situations you get into where you don't have a weapon, and in many games, that would mean instant death until you can regain a weapon of some kind. In Adventure Island, though, all losing your weapon means is that you have a different kind of puzzle to solve. Rather than making your way through a level and defeating enemies while avoiding obstacles, you now have to figure out how to use each level's unique layout to your advantage as you avoid enemies entirely, because in this game, one hit from an enemy kills you, forcing you to restart from the last stage checkpoint that you happen to reach. So let me paint you a picture. You enter a stage, and you have a fireball equipped, which is awesome because it's super powerful. Oh, and by the way, as you move from stage to stage, you keep whatever weapon you ended the prior stage with. In other words, if you end a stage with the fireball, you start the next stage with the fireball as well, which can really help. Going back to our scenario, you start the stage, and you have the fireball, which means you can pretty much lay waste to anything in your path. You're walking forward, spamming the fireball, destroying obstacles like rocks that would normally require you to jump over them, and you're obliterating enemies before they even have a chance to react. It feels awesome, and you feel like you are a platforming god. Unfortunately, you miss a tricky jump just before reaching the next checkpoint, and you're forced to restart the level from the beginning, this time without your fireball, because you lose your weapon whenever you die. Also, unfortunately, is that this is one of those levels where the game does not give you an easily accessible weapon, which means you now have to work your way through the level without any weapon, which means now you have to avoid rather than defeat enemies. You begin making your way through the level, and you encounter the rocks that you were previously able to destroy with your fireballs. Only now, you can't. You think about jumping over the rocks, because if you hit them, you do take some damage. But the only issue is, the formation you have to get past is a rock, followed by an immediately placed enemy, followed by another rock, followed by an enemy, followed by another rock. Now, I will say that the game controls tightly enough to potentially jump right next to an enemy and then jump past him. But in this instance, we come up with a different approach. Using the unique physics of a rocket, which basically bumps you in an arc in the direction of your hit, we jump into the first rock intentionally, which bumps us over the next enemy, landing on the next rock, which once again bumps us over the following enemy before bumping the third rock and landing past the dangerous obstacles. Sure, we've taken a bit of damage, but we just pulled off what felt like a crazy platforming feat. And by the way, when you start to get proficient at the game, you start to see opportunities for those kinds of skips everywhere, until eventually you realize that the entire game was designed so meticulously that you could technically have constant movement through every level, many of which you'd never even need to use a weapon to complete. 
there were plenty of times that I felt like a speedrunner, simply because of how cool the platforming sequences were and how awesome it felt to use the obstacles to my advantage. Now, let me make it perfectly clear. I am not a speedrunner, and I'm sure actual talented people at this game pull off all sorts of crazy moves that I could only dream of hitting. But the fact that the game makes you feel skilled despite its high difficulty is truly awesome. There are even other items available that serve to increase that feeling of tricky platforming, with the one with the most potentially profound impact on the experience being your skateboard. Just like weapons and several other items in the game, you can find a skateboard hidden in eggs throughout the game, and if you pick it up, you'll immediately transition into riding your skateboard, which makes movement in general quicker and can make some sections with multiple platform jumps a bit more difficult. But the skateboard also gives you a free hit, meaning you can hit an enemy that would otherwise kill you and all that happens is you lose your skateboard. That alone makes the item very useful in certain sections of various levels. There are even more features included in the game, such as bonus levels where you have to bounce across a bunch of springboard platforms to collect as many fruit and items as possible without falling. But from my perspective, those are simple diversions, not really a core part of the overall experience. However, the most important feature and item in the entire game, bar none, is the Hudson Bee, which is found in a hidden egg at the end of the very first stage of the game. With the Hudson B, you unlock the ability to continue the game, infinitely, even if you lose all of your lives. You have to restart the current stage you're on, as you might expect, but at least you don't lose any real progress. And this becomes incredibly important, and I would say downright necessary for anyone who doesn't want to devote tens of hours to getting really good at the game. And the reason for that is, Adventure Island is very challenging, as I've alluded to before. Without the Hudson Bee, you literally have no continues. If you lose your three lives, you lose and have to start all the way from the beginning of the game. Now, I will say that after playing the game for a while, you'll likely get good enough to clear the first few worlds without too much difficulty. But later stages, regardless of how much you practice, will cause you issues. And there are a couple of incredibly tricky jumps in a couple stages that require nearly perfect jumps and weapon throws. Those sections are surmountable with practice, and as I do with every game we cover in this podcast, I did in fact beat the game without any sort of save states or other assists. But I can say with certainty that if I didn't have the ability to continue, and I got up to the last couple stages of the game and ended up dying, I probably would have either cried or thrown my controller in frustration. It's one of those games that does demand you to spend time with it in order to conquer it, but honestly, even the deaths and frustrating parts end up being worthwhile because the game is just designed so darn well that the difficulty feels totally fair. It's in no way arbitrary or random. It is simply designed as a challenging experience, and as long as you dedicate time to it, you will eventually emerge triumphant. Before we move on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I love seeing how the different companies marketed their products, especially because when we used to buy games around this time frame, we didn't have YouTube to look up gameplay videos. A lot of times we didn't even have magazine articles on us that we'd be able to reference and say, oh, look, look at that cool review or something like that. Most of the time when we were buying a game, 
we made that decision, that buying decision in real time, standing in a video and computer game store, looking at the box. And the decision came down to, does that box look cool? Is there some cool stuff written on the back of the box? If so, hopefully it's going to be a good game. And a lot of times it was not, but I still love looking at the back of the boxes. I just find it fascinating the way that different companies would market their products. So for Adventure Island, for the NES, the back of the box says, you just found out that Princess Leilani was kidnapped by the evil witch doctor and taken to Adventure Island in the South Pacific. You land on Adventure Island without weapons or food. The island is thick with tropical forest, mountains, and caves. Hidden on the island are your skateboard, axe, food, and other helpful tools you must find by exploring the island. Better find the weapons and food quickly because you will need them to fight the witch doctor's spiders, snakes, bats, and demons. The evil witch doctor has set lots of traps for you before you can face him one-on-one. Are you up for the challenge? Can you live through Adventure Island to save Princess Leilani? And then there are three screenshots on the back of the box. I've got to say, if I saw this, and I did in fact see this when I was younger because I own an original copy of Adventure Island, I would have thought, okay, that sounds pretty cool. I mean, the screenshots look nice. Looking at it nowadays, it kind of is fairly primitive or maybe I'll say childish in some ways, the way it's described and the way they did the box art. But I mean, this was the eighties and the video game industry was still relatively new, or at least with the NES in North America, it was still relatively new. So they were just trying to market whatever they could. And a lot of the marketing was designed for kids, even though Adventure Island would probably have made many kids, myself included, cry. Anyway, Moving on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game, we are going to start by talking about the graphics. In comparison to Wonder Boy, you can definitely see where Adventure Island needed to be simplified to run on Nintendo's 8-bit hardware. So this is one area where the arcade origins of the game differ from the home version of the experience. That being said, if I look at Adventure Island as a distinct 8-bit experience... I have to say that the game looks really good. The colors are simple and bright, and each stage type is distinct from each other. If the game tells you you're in an icy cave, you see very clearly that you're in an icy cave, as the graphics represent each environment perfectly. Character design is similarly top-notch, with a large variety of enemies, all of which look distinct and feature well-designed sprites and animations. I also really enjoyed the size of the final bosses of each of the individual four-stage worlds that you progressed through. They were very large sprites, which almost didn't feel like an NES game, which was kind of awesome. I pretty much have no complaints about Adventure Island's visual presentation. It is simply a good-looking 8-bit title. Moving on to the sound and music, this is an area of the game where I believe Adventure Island far surpasses its arcade counterpart, as Adventure Island features a variety of music that ranges from bouncy island beats to dangerous sounding tracks, and even a spooky tango sort of song that accompanies the boss stages of each world. This music is so good. Seriously, the music is one aspect of the game that has stuck with me over the years, and for good reason. The game sounds remarkable. If I compare that variety of music to Wonder Boy, in my personal opinion, Adventure Island wins by a landslide. It's not that Wonder Boy's soundtrack is bad, 
it just sounds less developed, which is a bit surprising given it was an arcade title and as a result had access to much higher powered hardware than 8-bit home consoles. We have seen this in other arcade conversions, where for some reason, at least in my ears, a lot of times the home versions just sound better, despite running on lower powered hardware. I don't know if others have similar observations, but it's happened enough times to me that it definitely warrants a mention. Sound effects, meanwhile, all sound great and feel perfectly integrated into the action on the screen. No complaints from me about any aspect of the sound in the game. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as Master Higgins, if you're in the United States, Master Wiggins, in the UK, or perhaps most famously, Takahashi Meijin, if in Japan. And your goal, regardless of who you're playing as, is to save Princess Tina from the evil witch doctor that captured her, or Princess Lilani, as we saw on the box art. They changed these names all around. I don't know what the heck's going on there. Anyway, as you make your way throughout the game, you have to traverse multiple levels, dispatch multiple minions of the witch doctor, and eventually save the princess from certain doom. So look. The narrative isn't going to win any awards for depth, but as I've stated in various prior episodes, you do not need a deep narrative in a platforming title. In fact, you pretty much don't need any narrative in a platformer, though I always appreciate it when developers include some form of story to provide a reason why you're doing what you're doing. Adventure Island has a very loose, high-level narrative framework for your overall adventure, and that is just fine from my standpoint. I wouldn't have really wanted or expected anything more. Moving on to the playability and controls, the game is very simple to control, reminiscent of other platformers released around the mid-80s. You move side to side using your directional pad, and you have two separate buttons for inputs, one for jumping and one for throwing your weapon. And that literally is the extent of the control scheme for the game, which I've got to say works absolutely flawlessly. This game has some of the tightest controls I've experienced in an 8-bit platformer, and I always felt in control of my character, which meant that every time I died, and trust me, there were a lot of deaths, the failure was mine alone. This is a prime example of a game where the controls enhance the experience of playing, or perhaps a better way to put it is the controls allow you to play the game without any sort of friction. I'm sure we've all played games where you're literally battling the controls to bend the game to your will. Well, with Adventure Island, you don't need to do that. The game simply controls beautifully. As far as playability is concerned, I honestly have no critiques. The game remains 100% playable and enjoyable to this very day. Though I do have to mention, once again that Adventure Island is not an easy game, and you will die plenty of times as you learn the levels, enemies, and pitfalls. But like we talked about, all of this difficulty is completely fair, with no randomness or arbitrary difficulty spikes. The game as a whole is designed impeccably well, and from my perspective, Adventure Island is on the short list of best platforming titles for the NES. It is legitimately that fun to play. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? It just felt amazing, even almost 40 years after its original release. The controls, overall difficulty curve, level and enemy design, and music all combine to create an experience that brings me right back to my living room in the late 80s. And it's a testament to the quality of the game that regardless of whether I look at the game through nostalgia goggles or if I look at it through the harsher lens of the modern day, 
Adventure Island remains an awesome experience. I always knew that the game was a quality title, as I've played it multiple times over the years, though I honestly never sat down to experience it fully until I was preparing for this podcast episode. Now, having played through the game in its entirety, I can safely say that Adventure Island is one amazing experience, and I will bet that anyone who doesn't mind some difficult but fair platforming goodness will likely enjoy this title. So what is our verdict? Where does Adventure Island sit in the overall context of video and computer game history? Well, it's probably obvious by now, but Adventure Island is absolutely a member of our pantheon of classic gaming. Its gameplay is difficult, but rewarding. Its design is simple, yet with an elegance that makes you feel like an expert gamer when everything clicks, and its overall structure is fulfilling without overstaying its welcome. In short, this is the kind of game all similarly styled platformers should strive to emulate. I had a ton of fun during my most recent playthrough, and despite its difficulty, I found myself coming back and wanting more Adventure Island goodness any chance I could get. Even after beating the game, I thought to myself, well, maybe I can reduce the number of continues I needed to use. I very rarely get that feeling after beating a particularly challenging game, so this tells me that Adventure Island is a cut above most other titles, and as a result, absolutely deserves its spot in our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Adventure Island. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, recommendations for future episodes, or just talk about games and classic technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. And we also have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to connect with anybody from this podcast, myself included, as well as the rest of the community. It's a very active server. We have a lot of fun out there. We do games of the month. We talk about future episode roadmaps and all that good stuff. I just talk about a bunch of classic games. It's a lot of fun. I highly encourage if you want to get some more information or you want to really join the discussion, Discord is the place to be. I should also mention that we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want to get even more classic gaming today goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the point and click adventure game. Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. 
At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and it would be great if you wouldn't mind to leave a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what this is really all about is trying to get the feedback needed to make sure that this is the best possible podcast that I can create. The only way to do that is to get feedback from you, the community, to make sure that I am delivering the content that you all want to listen to. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. I want to make sure that we continue to deliver the content that you all enjoy to listen to, and I really just want to make sure that this can be, and I continue to focus on making this, the best possible podcast I can. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Indiana Jones and the fate of Atlantis. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>